seeing the beginning of the marvelous love of Jesus in their life. That's a, a life worth living. A life worth living. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to be very ambitious. We're going to, co- we're going to try to cover four chapters of Genesis today. So that's why I told John and Jeannie, it, this is old school, right? We had, we're singing from actual paper, and it's going to be an old school sermon, but, and you might not get out until 3 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> Just letting you know, that's, four chapters is a lot to do. Let me tell you what I, what I really want to do. Um, in, in youth, we've been going on Wednesday nights, we've been going through a curriculum called the Gospel Project. And is, we're walking through the Old Testament, and we're learning about how, and we're really going to walk through the whole Bible, but we're, right now we're in the Old Testament, and we're learning about how this is a story about Jesus. And um, what I wanted to do is just revisit that a little bit here, partly for review, partly because it's just so exciting to me. Um, let me fill you in on how our whole, our whole study started. We, before we actually opened up the Old Testament, we opened up our Bibles to Luke chapter 24. If you want to turn there, you can. It's, it's a fascinating passage. Luke chapter 24. After Jesus has died, he's risen again, but he hasn't, he hasn't ascended to heaven yet. So he's died, he's risen again, he hasn't ascended yet, and he's walking, and, and he runs across these two men. And these men were on their way to a place, a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So this is a story some of you are familiar with, the two men on the road to Emmaus, this is those two men. And Jesus appears to them, uh, and he begins to talk to them, and it tells us that these men were prevented, in verse 16 it says, they were prevented from actually recognizing who Jesus was. But they're talking to him, and they explain, we're brokenhearted. Well, why are you brokenhearted? It's because of the death of this man, Jesus. We thought he was our Messiah, and now he's dead, and we don't know what to make of all this. The interesting thing is what Jesus does for them. Um, let, let me read for you in verse 25. He said to these men, how unwise and slow are you to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. He says, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them the things, uh, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So beginning with Moses, Moses is the man who wrote the first five books of our Old Testament. He wrote Genesis. So he started in Genesis, and he goes all the way through all the prophets, Malachi being the last of the prophets, right? So he walks from the very beginning of the Old Testament, and he goes all the way to the end of the Old Testament, and he says, didn't you know that whole book was about me? And he says, that the text says he walked on this seven-mile trip with them, And he went through the entire Old Testament and talked to them about himself in the Old Testament. And if you're thinking today, how much fun could a seven-mile walk talking about the Old Testament be? Listen to their response. After Jesus is done talking to them, he actually disappears. Um, 
what verse was it? Okay, verse 30. Uh, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And they said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us when he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Weren't our hearts on fire listening to this man talk about the Old Testament? My guess is that most of us, I, I, my guess was this way for our youth, and my guess is it's true for us as adults too, would be more like the men from Emmaus before Jesus than after. Most of us are like the men from Emmaus who we've heard the Bible stories of the Old Testament, some of us hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And the truth is that if we're honest about it, we don't read these stories and say, my heart was ablaze within me while I studied the Old Testament. Most of us would be hard-pressed to even explain, how in the world is the Old Testament about Jesus? The Old Testament was written a lot of it, 2,500 years before Jesus was even born. How can a book be written 2,500 years before Jesus is born and be about Jesus? And so these men were sad, they were broken, they were depressed, and Jesus says it's just because you don't understand the Bible. You don't understand that it's a book about me. So what I want us to do this morning is try to put ourselves kind of like we're in their shoes a little bit. I want us to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to go to Genesis. We're going to look at the story of Noah and the ark. And I want to kind of imagine, what if Jesus were on this road with us, and he says, let me show you from Moses, from the story that Moses wrote of Noah and the ark, how that this is really a story about me. And my hope is that we'll get, we'll get some stuff out of this, but especially what I'd love to see is that our hearts would become ablaze within us because we understand how incredible the Bible is. I think one of the things that keeps us from that is, is not exactly understanding how it works. There was an illustration that a professor gave in seminary that really kind of helped me understand why I had trouble with the Old Testament. And before we actually open up uh, Noah and, and look at his story, I want to give you this illustration just in case it will help you as much as it helped me. He said that he kind of thought of the Bible like it was blind date. And he said in the Old Testament was kind of like the description that you got from your friend before you showed up to the date. And the New Testament is the date when it shows up. He says, so he opens up the, New the Old Testament, and he's reading, and he's trying to look for who the person that shows up. It's like a friend's letter. He says, when you get to this restaurant, you're going to be looking for a girl, and she's going to be five foot two, brown hair. Um, she's working in the nursery right now with two-year-olds. And so you're going to go through, describe this perfect girl for you, right? And, you, and you're reading this, and you're looking at it, and this whole list, it wouldn't make sense if I didn't know it was connected to a person I'm looking for. Right, this a list of five foot two, and, and a list of these things would just seem strange if I didn't know that it was telling me what to look for and who to look for. And but if I know, if I know that this list is describing the love of my life, who's about to walk through these doors, I'm studying this list with reckless abandon. I want to know how tall is she, what color hair does she have. 
right? I want to know everything about her. And then when she walks in, right, in the New Testament is when Jesus walks into this scene. I imagine that the idea is, I look at this list and say, it was exactly right. Everything it said was exactly what I was expecting. And now I see, and so much more. Right? The Old Testament told me exactly what to look for, and I was able to find him because it told me exactly who he was going to be. And now he's here, and I see he's everything that I thought and more. And that's how the Old Testament works for us. Largely, the Old Testament is a list of this is who's coming for you. And the New Testament is, and now he's come. And that's what makes it such an exciting book. All right. That just is preface to help us understand this book of well, the story of Noah and the ark. My goal today is really to show you how the story of Noah and the ark is really like this blind date thing. How does Noah and the ark help us anticipate Jesus? How does it get our hearts to burn within us? How does it prepare us for the coming of the Messiah? I chose Noah and the Ark story for a couple reasons. One is we've been studying it in youth group, and so I thought review would be helpful for us. It's always helpful to review these stories. Two is I would, see, I would think that a lot of us are probably somewhat familiar with this story. Maybe not everyone, but a lot of us are. Noah and the Ark story is pretty familiar in our culture, right? Dorothy, I have an 18-month-old baby, and maybe half her toys are Noah's and the Ark toys. We have little people. I don't know if y'all know what those are, but they're like, if you know what little people are, they're awesome toys. But we have a Noah in the Ark little people set, and we have Noah in the Ark books, and we have uh, Noah, Noah in the Ark. There was a Veggie Tales, right? There was a big movie. Noah, it's just kind of like Noah in the Ark is everywhere. A lot of people who maybe aren't even super familiar with the church are kind of familiar with the Noah in the Ark story, Right? But I think that what's true, whether you grew up in church and you've heard the story a thousand times, or maybe this is your first time hearing the story, the, the truth is most of us have not read this story and not thought about this story in a way that unveiled to us the glory of Jesus. We don't read Noah in the Ark, and I don't play with the little people and think, this is all about Jesus. And I think it's caused this story to become little more for us, and a lot of us in our culture, than an amusing fairy tale, one that we may even get bored with as we become familiar with it. So what I want to do is revisit it and ask, what's the big idea? How is this about Jesus? And I want to come up with really two main points today. The main point I want to make, the first one, is that the story is a story about Jesus. Right? I've been saying that all along. The main character of this story, Noah, is a person meant to teach us about Jesus. That's going to be surprising because a lot of us have thought through the story of Noah and the ark, and we have thought, am I like Noah? And we've compared ourselves to Noah. I'm going to argue this morning that I think it's better for us to compare Jesus to Noah. My second point is that you are like somebody in the story. It's not Noah. You are like the rest of the people in the story, the unrighteous. Noah's Ark is a story of really three characters. There's God, there's this righteous man named Noah, and then there's the unrighteous. Most of the unrighteous die when God pours out his wrath in a flood that covers the whole earth. But there's some unrighteous people 
that we often overlook. There's seven. There's seven unrighteous people who actually get on the ark. Noah has a wife, six kids, who are not described as the only righteous person in the world. That's Noah. But they're still saved. Not because they're righteous, but because they are children of Noah, because they are associated with Noah. So I want to argue two things at the end of this story. I'm going to come back and say this was a story to teach us about Jesus, that Noah is like Jesus. But I'm also going to say this is a story that's asking you to evaluate yourself. How are you connected to the main character? Are you one of the people who will die in the wrath of God? Or are you going to be saved because of your connection to the main character of the story? I hope that's helpful. We're going to dive into it, but before we do, let's just pray and ask God to help us understand. Dear Lord, as we walk through this story, I want to pray several things for us. One is I want to start by asking uh, just for you to guide me. Help me to speak clearly. Help me to speak correctly. Anything that I think or believe is just my own thoughts, I pray that you will strict those, uh, keep those from being a, a deception to people. Anything that is your word, I pray that you will bring it out and that you will let it bear fruit. I pray for all of us in here that as, this, as we open up your word, that we will become like these men from Emmaus who say that our hearts burn within us because of the excitement, the exciting reality of your word. At the end of the day, I, I, I mostly pray that this story will be a tool by which all of us in here will have the opportunity, opportunity to meet you and to know you. And that we can walk away here with a renewed passion for the song we just sang, that your love is marvelous. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. We have four chapters to cover. Four chapters. The story of Noah begins in chapter 6. And what I'm going to do before I go through all the points is I'm just going to refresh our minds of the story. I'm going to try to walk through it. Since it is four chapters, I'm not going to read every verse. But it would help if you have your Bibles open to Genesis 6 because I'm going to refer back to the text over and over and over. And I'm just going to try to remind ourselves what is going on in this story. If you remember the very beginning of Genesis, is the creation. God creates Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sin. And their, their sin starts this chain reaction of sin. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. Right? Their, their children murder Cain murders Abel. And then after that, we have this genealogy of people who continually die. He lived this long, and then he died, which is a result of this curse that we're all going to die. And there's death after death after death after death. And then there's, there's, one, there's one exception. Enoch is a man who walks with God in chapter 5, and he's taken up to be with God. But everyone else is just dying. They're just dying. And then you get to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, you realize that this curse, the sinfulness, has reached a fevered pitch. Let me read to you. I'll, I'll just start. I'm in chapter 6. I'll, I'll read in verse 5. When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every scheme of his mind, his thought, 
was of nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. The, the Lord God said, I will wipe off from the face of the earth mankind whom I created, together with the animals and the creatures that crawl and the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor in the sight of the Lord. Before we move on, I want to just address this word regret. I think um, it's helpful to know. I, I believe that, that Moses is using regret as a, in a way that we don't use it most of the time here. I don't think that this means that God believed he had made a mistake. Uh, we know this because God doesn't make mistakes. Right? All throughout the Bible, God says, I don't make mistakes. He's perfect without error. And we also know that God knew the end from the beginning. So it wasn't like he gets to this point and God's like, whoa, I didn't realize this was going to happen. God, God has already told us the end of the story. So he has to know the chapters that get us there. So this isn't a situation where God thinks, I didn't know this was coming, and now I've made a mistake, and I don't know what I'm going to do to get out of this. What this is, I believe, is a figure of speech that is expressing the deep emotional reality that is true of our God, that he is a God who feels grieved, hurt, saddened when he looks at our sinfulness. That God sees us, and it is a deep sense of pain that it causes God to watch the people he created to love him and worship him respond in rebellion and evil and wickedness. And so Noah, or Moses reflects that using a figure of speech of regret, but I think what he's really highlighting here is the deep emotional grief that God is feeling. And he looks throughout the whole world, and he says that's the case of everybody in the world except for we saw in verse 8, Noah. However, the lone exception found favor in the sight of the Lord. Noah is this one exception of grace, of, of, of God says, I love this man. He's not grieving me like everyone else. He goes on and says these are the family records of Noah, and he, and he just really kind of reemphasizes Noah is a righteous man. He blameless among everyone else in the world. No one else in the world is like Noah. He's the only righteous one. Noah walked with God, which is, again, I think pointing us back to Enoch, how Enoch walked with God. Noah is this righteous man. Verse 11, the, the earth, not like Noah, is corrupt in God's sight. It's filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was. Every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Every creature, he's saying. He's not even just talking about men. He's saying the world has become an evil place where dogs attack people, right? It's not, this is not how the world was supposed to be. Even the creatures have lost their way. And he says, I, it grieves my heart to see the world in its fallen state. So God says to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the whole earth. And then he begins to tell Noah his way of escape. Make for yourself an ark, a large boat. And he gives us the dimensions of it. Uh, Jeffrey's Sunday school class went out and measured it. And Jeffrey was telling me the other night, the ark was started from about, the, there's a light pole on the end of, the carport there, and it went 
all the way 50 feet past the cypress trees at the end of our property, a huge, huge boat. They measured that in, in, uh, in their Sunday school class. Huge boat. And that's going to be your salvation. He says in verse 17, understand I'm bringing a flood. The flood waters on the earth and they're, they're going to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark with your sons and your wife and your sons' wives. And he goes on and he talks a little bit about bringing in the two animals. And then we see another reason why Noah's finding favor. Because at the end of chapter 6, Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. You're again seeing how special of a character Noah is. At every point, God finds favor. He's the only righteous person among all of his contemporaries. And everything that God commands, including building this giant boat, Noah does it. In chapter 7, the Lord says to Noah, enter the ark and all your household, for I've seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. And then he talks to him about sending out all the animals in and uh, how it's going to rain. And in verse 5, he says, and Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. And it seems like Moses really just wants you to know, Noah is an interesting character. He's different than everyone else. He alone is righteous. Noah's 600 years old when the flood comes, and he did everything God says. It tells us again in verse 9, he enters the ark with Noah just as God had commanded him. And seven days later, the waters of the flood came on the earth. In the 600 year of Noah's life, he gives us tons of details. It's, it's the second month and the 17th day of the month, and on that day, all the sources of the watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were open. The rain fell in there for 40 days and 40 nights. But Noah and his family were safe. Because in verse 16, those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered just as God had commanded them. And there was this huge door of the ark, and God himself shut the door and saved them. The next part of the story is reiterating the extent of God's wrath, his anger. He looked out at the wickedness of the earth, and he said, this should not be. And so he says, I'm going to destroy the wickedness. Shouldn't be. Verse 23 says, he wiped out every living thing that was on the surface of the ground, from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, they're all wiped off, they're wiped off the earth completely. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. And the water surged on the earth for 150 days. We're in chapter 8 and we're still feeling the effects of God's judgment. 40 days and 40 nights were just the beginning of the outpouring of God's wrath. The water stayed for a long time, surging for 150 days. And we keep finding more of the story of Noah hoping to find some sort of land so they can finally get off this boat that they've been trapped on for a quarter of a year already. More than a quarter of a year. 
And they sent out the birds. You remember the story of they sent out a raven and three doves. And they're just looking for some hope that God's judgment will relent. But we finally see the climax of the story. In chapter 8, verse 14, by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. Finally, finally we see God's wrath has relented. God speaks to Noah, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, uh, and you bring your sons' wives with you, bring out all the living creatures. And so Noah, along with his sons and his wife, they come out, all the wildlife, everybody was saved. Everybody was saved. The climax of the story, God has wiped out everybody in his righteous judgment, but he has saved Noah and those that were with him. After the climax of the story, um, there's what you call in storytelling what we call closing action. It's, it's the kind of author's explanation. What is all of this supposed to teach us? And it starts really in verse 20 when we see that Noah responds to God. After all of this judgment, Noah responds in worship. He makes an altar. And in verse 21, it says, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Even though man's inclination is evil from his youth, I will never strike down every living thing as I have done. That's God's promise. He saw Noah's righteousness. He saw Noah's worship of God. And he said, because of Noah's goodness, I will not destroy people, even though they are wicked. From their youth, they are wicked. That continues. He says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, none of those will cease. And God continues in chapter 9 to continue to hand out blessings. He establishes government. He establishes how people to interact with each other. And then in verse 11, kind of the, some of the famous parts of God's promises and his covenants, he says, I will confirm my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by the waters of a flood. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I am making between me and every living creature with you. A covenant for all future generations. That's, that's including us. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Let me pause here and just talk about what a strange, what a strange sign, what a strange covenant. Because we read this and we think, the rainbow, right? And when you think of rainbow, you think that's the first thing kids draw, and it's colorful, and it's pretty. But that's not really the word that's being used here, and that's not really the picture. He's placing a bow. He's placing a weapon in the sky. Is a grand one, and is a colorful one. Is one that maybe only God could wield. But he's not describing it as a pretty thing that is not about diversity, is not about unity, is not about pretty things that kids love. He says, I'm placing a weapon in the sky to remind you that I am done with my war against you. I've placed a weapon in the sky, a bow. I've hung it in the sky to tell you that I'm done with my attack. This bow, I'm reading in 16, this bow will be in the clouds. And he says, I will look at it. God will look at it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have confirmed between me and every creature on the earth. 
So my question I want to ask you, what's the main idea of that story? In our, we're taking a, a, a class, we're doing a class on Monday nights, how to study the Bible, and we ask ourselves routinely, what's the main idea? Why is this written? There's a lot of things we can glean, but what's the main idea? And one of the things we've looked for is that the main idea of a story comes in the climax and the conclusion of it. What I believe the main idea of this story is that God can bless many people, even save a wicked world through the righteousness and obedience of a single man. Let me restate that. What's the main reason that Moses wrote this? What's the main idea of this text? That is that God is showing us, he's demonstrating, he's promising, he's trying to teach us that God can save a wicked, evil, rebellious world through the righteousness and obedience of a single person. Noah was that single person. Over and over and over, the text said, the world is horribly wicked, but Noah alone is righteous. God pours out his judgment like a just God should, and he destroys the world. But he says, because there was one righteous man, he has saved a remnant from which the whole world would again flourish. And we today all come from Noah and the ark, where God saved two of every animal, and he saved Noah and his family And he gets them off the ark and he promises because of the righteousness and obedience of Noah, because of Noah's offering where he gives and God smells the aroma, he says, I'm never going to destroy the earth again, not because the earth doesn't deserve it, right? He doesn't say, I will not destroy the earth because the earth doesn't deserve to be destroyed. He says, I will not do it because I have found favor with Noah. And because of, what Noah, because of Noah's righteousness, Noah's offering at the end of the ark, he says, even if people are inclined toward, they're bent toward, they're prone to do wickedness, even from their youth, he says, still, I will not destroy all of the earth because I have, I'm going to reward the faithfulness, the obedience, the righteousness of one single man. That's the main idea of the story. And so now let's flash forward this road to Emmaus that we started with. And you imagine Jesus walking with, with these two men down this road to Emmaus, and he says, don't you understand that the Old Testament is about me? He says, take, for instance, the story of Noah. And I imagine them saying, whoa, 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 Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus at the time, but Jesus is never in the story of Noah. I never read anything about the name of Jesus in that entire story. How can you claim that's about him? There's not even a promise. There's not even a, hey, on this day, from this sun, it's going to be when the Messiah comes in. What do you mean this was a story about Jesus? And I think Jesus would have looked at them and said, I'm Noah. Don't you understand that Noah was a picture of who I am perfectly, hugely? Noah was written to teach you that by one righteous man, the entire world can be blessed and saved. He says, I am that righteous man. I think the story of Noah and his ark is to teach us who Jesus is. Let me tell you a couple ways that Noah is like Jesus. Over and over and over, we've already saw that Noah was the only righteous person among all of his contemporaries. 
the one righteous person alone. I'll tell you this, none of us can fit that description. If God did, and I'll talk about this again, but if God did a whole search of the entire world, and he says, I'm looking for one righteous person, no one on this room, in this room would be the person he would find. There's only been one person in all of history who God has described as without sin, as purely righteous, as alone among all of his contemporaries. There's only one person who God has ever described as sinless, righteous, without any fault or blemish. That is Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes Jesus as the one who knew no sin. That's the one that became sin for us. He knew no sin whatsoever on his own. Noah's like Jesus because over and over and over again, Noah obeys God. How many times did we read in chapter 6 and 7 that Noah did all that God had commanded him? To the point where it's like, okay, Moses, I get it. I get it. You said it five, six, seven, eight times. But Jesus reemphasizes that over and over and over again, too. He says, I am doing what the Father has commanded me. In John 15, 10, I'll read to you. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Jesus is saying what demonstrates that he is right with his father is that he keeps his commandments the same way that Noah had kept God's commandments. But the biggest comparison between Noah and Jesus is clear that Noah's righteousness not only saves Noah, it saves all of Noah's family. And the message of the New Testament, and really the message of the entire Bible, is that if you are in God's family through Jesus Christ today, you can be saved. Let me read to you a fascinating passage. Romans chapter 8. I'll just read verses 16 and 17. You don't have to turn there. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children were also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. What what does that mean? You're heirs with God. It means the benefits that Christ is deserving of, we're getting because we're co-heirs with him, right? God said, Noah, you deserve to be on the ark. The one righteous man, I'm going to build this ark just for you. But your heirs get to come, come in with you. Your wife, your kids, they get to be brought along on the basis of you being the one that was alone righteous, you being the one that was alone keeping my commands. Paul says in Romans, that's how our salvation works. He says when we become God's children, we become co-heirs with Jesus. You get what Jesus deserves, not what you deserve. I get to share in his blessings. The message of Noah and the ark teaches us that because Jesus is righteousness, uh, Jesus is righteous, we have an opportunity to share in that blessing, to avoid the judgment that we deserve if we are associated with the one who doesn't deserve it. My second point, my first point was Noah is like Jesus. Jesus is like Noah. My second point that I would like to make as we try to understand this passage, is that none of us in this room are. I just want to emphasize that probably you already completely are aware of that. 
I said earlier, if we did a survey of the entire world and we looked for one righteous person, most of you in this room would know that I wouldn't be the most righteous person in the world, maybe not even the most righteous person in this room today. I wouldn't have any hope if God was just looking for the best of the best. It goes beyond just the sense that we have. The Bible promises that. that It says this is what's true of you. Let me read in Romans 3. Romans 3 starts in verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seek for God. All have turned away. All have become useless. There is none who does what is good, not even one. If the Bible teaches anything clearly, it is that you and I are not like Noah. That kind of blows me away because most of my life I've read the story of Noah and I've thought, am I like Noah? Would I trust God and build the ark if he asked me to do it? And I think there's some good things in there. Don't get me wrong because I want to be like Christ and Christ is like Noah. But the truth is in this story, I am far more like the people who are unrighteous than the one who is righteous. Now, there's two categories, there's two options of unrighteous people. The vast majority of unrighteous people perish under the wrath of God. The truth of that story is that God pours out his wrath in the flood and it destroys, he says, all living creatures. Except just those who are associated with Noah. The story of the Bible is that because you and I are unrighteous, We have earned his wrath and his judgment. The story of the Bible is that because we recognize I'm not like Noah, we deserve to die. We deserve to be the people who don't get in the ark. But there are seven people who are also like us. They are unrighteous. They are Noah's wife and Noah's six kids, three sons and three daughter-in-laws. And they get into the ark. Not because they are righteous, but because they are the sons of Noah. And that's your option this morning. Your option this morning is to ask yourself, will I stay outside of the ark and bear the full brunt of the wrath of God upon his final judgment day like I deserve? Or will I associate, will I become one with a family member with the one who doesn't deserve God's wrath and be spared, not because I deserve it, but because he doesn't deserve it. This could create a problem in some of your minds. And the interesting thing is is maybe not even the same problem as the New Testament has. The, The New Testament was written to people who were flabbergasted that God would have put seven people who didn't deserve it in the ark. Isn't that interesting? Some of us today think, how could God destroy all these people? Most of the people in Jesus' day, it appears, believe that that those people deserve to be destroyed. They believe when you're an enemy of the king, you deserve to be wiped out by the king. What they didn't like is that seven enemies of the king could be saved by getting on the ark. And the question is, how in the world could God still be just and bring those seven other people in with Noah? How can we still say God is good, God is right, God is just, and he saves not only Noah, but seven unrighteous people who are like you and me? 
personally, I believe that answer is foreshadowed in the rainbow itself. Remember I said how odd the bow is? Why put a war weapon in the sky to remind us that he's done with war? I don't know. I'm not sure that the original readers fully grasped what was going on. But I'm pretty confident that God meant more by that symbol than they even realized. Because what we would have expected is when God was at war with people, that bow would be pointed at the ground, right? The way a bow shapes, you have your curved part facing the target, and you have your straight part facing the guy that you're not at war with. But when we look in the sky, the bow faces up. The weapon is pointed toward heaven. And what I think that that is suggesting to us is the way that God saves us is it not that he stops the war, but he changes its direction. Not that he says, I'm not at war with unrighteous, but I'm going to direct my attack toward the heavens so that the ones on earth might be saved. You say, where in the world are you getting this from? That seems crazy. Look, open up your Bibles. This is fascinating. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Whether or not you will agree at the end of the day that God meant the turning of the bow to show that he was at war at heaven. There is no question that God went to war with the person that we call the darling of heaven. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 21. It says, now apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed. The righteousness that lets us get in the ark, the righteousness that means that salvation can come, that has been revealed. It says it's attested by the law and the prophets, which means the Old Testament talks about it. It doesn't give it to us, but it talks about it. And that is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. So let me pause real quick. He's saying the way that you get on the ark, the way you get the righteousness that depends, that, that you need to be saved, to get on that ark, is through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. Why is that? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one has that righteousness on their own. But they are justified. They are made righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God pre uh, presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. Propitiation is a huge word. We don't use it a lot anymore. Uh, it just means to satisfy. I always, you remember the old Snickers commercials? Snickers really satisfies. If you're really hungry, you eat a Snickers bar. God's wrath needed to be, well, we could say Snickers really propitiates, right? If, you, if, you're, if you're really hungry, you propitiate your hunger with a Snickers bar. If you're God and you're full of wrath, Snickers bar doesn't do it, right? What do you need to satisfy your wrath? What do you need to propitiate that wrath? He turned his bow heavenward. Look at this. Because of his restraint of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. I'm sorry, a propitiation. I'm in verse 25. God presented him as a satisfaction through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, right? To demonstrate his righteousness. 
Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins of the previously committed. In other words, because of God's restraint, he let seven unrighteous people into the ark. And God uh, did that because he was going to turn his bow toward Jesus. God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. If you have uh, another translation, it will say the same thing in different words, that he did this to be both just and the justifier. Right? Why is the bow turned heavenward? Why does God go to war against his only son? So that he can not only be just in saving righteous people, but also be the one who makes those seven people who don't deserve to get in the ark deserve it. He says, I will go to war with the only one who doesn't deserve it so that at the end of the day, you can get in by being associated with him. Noah's Ark is awesome. Noah's Ark is awesome. There's one righteous man, and if you are associated with this righteous man, you can be saved from the wrath of God. And Jesus, I think, takes these men from Emmaus, and he says, didn't you know that that story was all about me? What do you mean? I'm the righteous one. If you are associated with me, you can escape your judgment. I want to close by asking one last question. How can you be associated with Jesus? If you came in here today and you've never thought about whether or not you're going to be on the ark or not, whether or not you will be saved from the wrath of God, but you recognize today I'm unrighteous and I don't deserve it. But I want to be associated with Jesus. I want to be called his child. I want to somehow get away from the destruction that is I deserve. If that's what you want, there's a very, very simple way to do it. John 1 tells us that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To as many as receive Jesus Christ, he said, they become my children. They become the ones that get in the ark because they're my children. They're associated with me. Uh, if, if the music team would like to come up, we're, I'm getting ready to pray. And I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, who are you in this story? Are you, you are an unrighteous person, but are you an unrighteous person that will get on the ark? or an unrighteous person who, because he has never received Christ, will be forever off the ark. Let me pray. Dear Lord, your book is amazing. 2,500 years before your son came to this earth, you told us about one man who, because of his righteousness, could save anyone who was associated with him. At the time, we don't even know if they realized who that was pointing to, but from this side of the book, we can see that Noah was just a type, a picture, an anticipation of the perfect righteous one who anyone associated with him could be saved by. And what I ask today is that you will stir our hearts into fire and excitement, both about your book and your promise, but especially about the one who has been sent to save us. If there's anyone in this room tonight or this morning who doesn't know you, I pray that you will stir their hearts to come up and speak come to this altar and just meet you, to place their faith in you so that they can be associated. 
I pray for those who have known this story for years and have long since trusted Christ. I pray that you will again stir in our hearts to fall more in love and that we will come just like Noah who built his altar, that we will come to the altar to again praise you and thank you for your amazing, marvelous love for us. I pray this in your name. Amen.